Revelation chapter 3. My name is Mike. I have the great honor and privilege of sharing the Word of God with you. I want to say hello to everybody joining us via the live stream. Once you're at Revelation chapter 3, if you would please stand as we hear from the Lord. Reading from the uh, English Standard Version, Revelation 3, verses 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I have one single request and that is that your spirit would move in this place your spirit would fill this place that he would touch us it is said of you lord that you can strike a straight blow with a crooked stick lord i am that crooked stick and i pray lord that you would use me to impact all of us myself included that we would leave here today knowing that we have heard from you and that we would respond accordingly. We ask all this in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. I don't know if you heard the news from this past week. There was a man who passed away. He was an inventor, a German fella by the name of Dietrich Lane. L-A-N-E. Amongst some of the inventions of Dietrich, who was known to his friends simply as D, uh, he's the guy who came up with the concept of the snooze button. And he's kind of an odd fella, and in his will, he made a particular, rather peculiar request. He said, when I die and you have my funeral... I want that funeral to be held very early on a Monday morning. It should begin exactly at 6 a.m. And then again at 6.09. And then again at 6.18 and 6.27. Thank you for laughing. It says, hopefully they will laugh. I wrote that in there. Thank you, Lord. You answered my prayer. It is hard to write comedy. There were audible crickets in here last night. But that's the funeral for Dietrich Lane or D. Lane. Get it? D. Lane? We needed to begin with a little levity this morning because this is a weighty passage. This is heavy. Things are going to get really heavy really quick. But in all seriousness, though, I did a little research this week on something I've never researched before, and that is sleep cycles. Learned a little bit about our sleep cycles, alarm clocks, snooze buttons. And there was a term I've heard before, but I didn't know what it meant. And it's circadian rhythm. I had heard of it, but I didn't know that it's, it's like this biological clock within each of us. It's given to us by our loving creator. And this mechanism within us loves predictability, especially when it comes to sleep cycles. What that means is if you go to bed at about the same time each night and you get up about the same time the next morning, 
your circadian rhythm will, will release these, these proteins and, and certain hormones into your system that lock in that behavior. And when this happens, it leads to a rather odd phenomenon that you may have experienced. If you're used to getting up at like 6 a.m. every morning, and all of a sudden you find yourself waking up at 5.59, that's your circadian rhythm at work. It's the levels in your body bringing you to alertness just prior to the alarm clock going off. That's because your body doesn't like the alarm clock. I mean, who does, right? That annoying sound. You know, how long you want me to do that for, right? It's a stressful thing. It's jarring to the system. Now, you enter in the snooze button. Scientists and sleep researchers, the people who study this stuff, almost to a person, they agree, you snooze, you lose. One website said this, since your body's gone through all that work to rise gradually, a quick nap sends your internal clock spinning in the wrong direction. All the hormones that help you fall asleep meddle with the hormones that help you wake up. And your body gets confused. You feel groggier. And with each slap of the snooze, it gets worse. The snooze, it seems, is the worst way to start your day. Sleep expert Neil Robinson explains, by dozing off for those extra minutes, we're preparing our bodies for another sleep cycle, which is then quickly interrupted, causing us to feel fatigued for the rest of the day. So these sleep researchers would tell you, lay off the snooze button. And as I thought about it, because I've been married for more than 25 years, if you are married and you sleep there with your spouse, and unless your spouse is on the same exact schedule you are, and you share the same exact philosophy when it comes to the utilization of the snooze button, you're going to really mess with their circadian rhythm. I mean, it's going to be annoying for them as you continue to, to hit that snooze button. So it's not good biologically, nor is it good relationally. What about spiritually? Does God ever send to us a wake-up call? Does He ever seek to rattle us, to get our attention, to shake us? I think He does. And He does it in a variety of ways. Often it's uh, some unexpected news that, that comes our way. It could be the passing of a loved one. It could be that you get that medical diagnosis. Certain circumstances and situations will alert us to snap out of and kind of wake up as to the reality of life. But I think he also does it through his word. And I think that's what we have today. In our passage today, I think it's if the Lord is metaphorically reaching out, putting His hand on our shoulder and shaking us, saying, wake up, wake up. And this isn't any sort of wake-up call. This is the wake-up call of all wake-up calls. Let's look at it. It's Revelation 3, beginning in verse 1. It says there, and to the angel of the church in Sardis right. Let's just stop right there. This is the Lord Jesus speaking. Your Bible may have the words in red. It's him identifying himself as the author of this letter to a church in Sardis. What do we know about Sardis? It's located roughly 30 miles southeast of Thyatira, which is the church we looked at last weekend. Sardis is rich. They were the ancient capital of the Lydian kingdom, meaning they were rich in gold and silver. And according to history, the historical record tells us that it was in Sardis where coins were first minted, where gold and silver were pressed into coins. So they're literally making money there in Sardis. And so if that is your, uh, the place where coins came to be, that city is going to quickly gain a reputation as being quite affluent. They were also in the garment industry. The dyeing of wool was their specialty. 
So when Jesus spoke about soiled garments and white garments, that, that would have made perfect sense to them. And have you noticed that in each of these churches that we've looked at? Jesus uses specific and intentional language that we, from the outside, in America, years and years later, have to say, well, wait, why did he use that metaphor or that imagery? But to the hearers, the audience to, the, to whom the letter was written, they would have known exactly what he's talking about because he's speaking their language, if you will. So Jesus, the way he crafts these letters is really amazing because it's, just the, it's not just the imagery that he uses, but also the way that he identifies himself is very relevant to each individual church. One commentator noted it like this. He said, in each of the seven letters... Jesus identifies himself in a way that perfectly suits the present condition of the particular church he is addressing. He says again in verse 1, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So who are these seven spirits of God and seven stars? You might think, well, there's only one spirit. What's up with seven spirits? Well, the number seven in the Bible is typically used to signify completeness or fullness. So he's saying he's got the fullness of the Spirit. Mentioned earlier in Revelation chapter 1, but many commentators believe this goes all the way back to Isaiah 11, where it says there, speaking of the Messiah, "...though shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse." And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So if you add those six there, wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, fear of the Lord, you add those six to the title, spirit of the Lord, that's where you get the sevenfold spirit that Jesus is referring to. So what are the seven stars? These are the messengers. These are the leaders of those churches. So what Jesus is saying is, I got the sevenfold spirit in one hand. I got the seven stars in the other. And this is how I govern and operate my churches. By the Holy Spirit, through godly leaders. But there's a problem in Sardis. Because they're lacking in one or maybe both of those. He says, second half of verse 1, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. See, Sardis had a good reputation. They had made a name for themselves. Your translation might say name, meaning like they made a name for themselves. They had a, a good reputation with the people in that area. Many would say, we got to go to that church in Sardis. They, they got it going on there. They got, you know, all these ministries and programs happening, multiple services, midweek programs, Bible studies, you know, community groups, prayer meetings, nice building that's well kept. Man, you got to go check out Sardis. That was the reputation that they had amongst men. But Jesus comes along and says, yeah, but I know your works. I know the real. I know the real deal. You're not fooling me with that. That you may look good to everyone else, but I know you and you're dead. Physically alive, spiritually dead. Lots of movement, but lacking in life. A lot of activity, a lot of religious activity, which doesn't always equate to spiritual vitality. Busyness does not equal godliness, necessarily. So what's the cause? What's the problem here? What's the cause for their spiritually dead condition? Jesus doesn't go into it. He just says, I know your works. But I think we can learn a little bit by what's not in the text. There's no mention there of any enemies, either internal or external, that are coming up against Sardis. There's no mention of food being sacrificed to idols. They're not tolerating any Jezebels. No wild sex parties. 
There's no mention of compromise or false doctrine. He doesn't mention any persecution. So it doesn't appear as though they're suffering. We know poverty's not the issue. They're rich. They got money. So no one is to blame except themselves for this. They are their own worst enemy, it seems. Living off of a past reputation, getting by purely on outward appearance. But you and I know full well that outward appearance doesn't always correlate to inward contents. I was thinking about uh, at Easter time, you get those chocolate bunnies, right? Oh, they look so good. I'm just going to bite off his ear and let all that chocolatey goodness kind of go right down my gullet. And then you bite into it and it just crumbles because it's one of them hollow bunnies from the pit of hell. <laughs> and they don't even use good chocolate in those. It's worthless. That's Sardis. Look good on the outside, hollow inside. Don't judge this book by its cover. Just like whitewashed tombs. They look good. Look how white they are. Just glimmering. Yeah, just crack it open. Because out from it is going to pour forth this stench of death. And that was Sardis. And so this letter, like almost all of them, is a cautionary tale. I think we have to ask ourselves this question. If Jesus was to address our church, Living Water Community Church, 206 Oakley Ave, Harrisburg, PA, he was to send us a letter, what would it say? What would it say? Would he commend us? If so, what for? Would he criticize us? If so, what for? What would he say to us collectively, but then what would he say to you individually? Right now, in your present condition, don't go back to some past glory of things that, you know, a time where things were going well. No, right now, check up, right now, how you doing? What, would, what if Jesus asked us that? What would he say about our condition? Here's what he says to the church in Sardis. Wake up! Wake up! Snap out of it! He says in verse 2, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Wake up! Some translations read, Be watchful! Be on alert! And yes, he's shifting metaphors here from death to sleep. But those two are often linked, right? In Scripture, death and sleep, some form or fashion, they're kind of connected. And he says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. This, I think, is a, one of the glimmers of hope in here. In this passage, there's a glimmer of hope because if something is about to die, it must have some life in it. can't be completely dead if it's about to die. It might just be a flickering flame, but hopefully if you, you know, stoke it, get it going, maybe that fire will return. And that's what Jesus is saying. Strengthen that. Again, he doesn't go into what it is, but whatever it is, strengthen it. Strengthen it because your works aren't complete in the sight of my God. Meaning they're not acceptable. They might please man, but not God. That's what he says. You know, they, they could be lacking in content, wrong kind of works. Maybe it's a volume issue, not enough works. Again, we don't know. Maybe they're wrongly motivated. Perhaps the most logical or one that theological that would fit with the text is they're probably not Holy Spirit produced works. They're deficient, therefore, in the eyes of Jesus. And he says, this is the vast majority of Sardis. And remember in the other churches, like, you guys are doing great overall. There's a little issue over here. There's a pocket of something going on. No, he's saying the majority here, dead. He's talking about a remnant. There's just a little bit of life still remaining. 
But by and large, they're busy corpses. Busy in motion, but it's the motion of a morgue. And many people have tried to identify the various stages churches go through in their lifetime. And they will put it to you something like this. Churches begin with a movement. Hopefully it's a, it's a movement of God powered by the Spirit, but it may not be. It may not be. It could just be a movement. That's it. But then the movement leads to a mission. These people are gathered together. Something's going on. Hey, we got to have a goal. We need an end game. Where are we going with this? That's the mission. And then the movement leads to a mission then becomes a machine. There's activity. There's motion. There's things happening. The wheels are in motion. Structures are put in place. Things are happening. But if the machine becomes the focus, these churches become monuments. You just got to keep the machine moving. We got something going here. Keep it oiled. Keep it lubed so that we can keep it going so that it continues to produce. And they're satisfied with the status quo. And if this continues, the monument becomes a museum. Change isn't welcomed. New ideas, get out of here with that. That's, that that's, we've, we've never done it that way. We've always done this. One writer said they refuse to butcher certain sacred cows. Life and vitality are now beginning to drain from the church. And if this continues and it doesn't get addressed, the last stage is they become a morgue or a mausoleum. Pick the M word of your choice to complete the alliteration. But they're dead. They're lifeless. What once began as an energized movement has gone from birth to death. And these are the life stages of churches who fail to heed the wake-up call. They, they continually sl slap the snooze button on it. And what happens is, collectively this happens on a collective level right i mean corporately it happens but the church is made up of what it's not the walls and the roof and the brick and mortar wood and cement the church is what it's people it's you and me so it happens also on an individual level personally and jesus says don't let that happen so what's the solution what's his answer well, verse 3. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. There's the solution right there to slumbering Sardis in the first portion of verse 3. But before we get to that, I want to I jump to the second portion and deal with that very strong warning Jesus gives. He says, if you will not wake up, I'll come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Again, wording that was specific to Sardis. They knew exactly what he was talking about. Because Sardis thought themselves to be secure. They thought they were safe. Partly because of the geography. They were a city uh, atop a mountain. Literally a city on a hill. And so militarily speaking, that gives you a very advantage, advantageous position. Where you can look down and see enemies approaching. Any attack, you're well aware of it. You got gravity working for you. From this lofty position, Sardis was very, well, they felt very protected. But... That didn't prevent them from being invaded, not once, but twice. And during one of the invasions, the, the, the army that came in against them, the enemy army that came in and besieged the city, they did it because there was no watchman on the wall. Sardis didn't even position anybody there. In their, in their you know, egotistical way of saying, we're so secure, we don't even need to protect this city. It'd be like us just doing away with our guardian ministry. 
all the people serving as guardians throughout this building. We don't need them. We're fine. We're, we're totally secure. But these enemy armies came in twice unexpectedly, like a thief in the night. See, all throughout the, the writings about Sardis, if you do any studying on Sardis, one word will come up over and over and over again as you read. And the word is impregnable. Impregnable. If you don't know what that means, let me, let me give you just a, a number of synonyms. Okay, it means secure, safe, unassailable, unconquerable, impenetrable, indestructible. Now, I don't know about you, when I hear the word impregnable, I think of one person, Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson comes to mind for me. You know Mike Tyson, right? Boxer back in the day, in the 80s, just straight knocking people out in the first round, right? Heavyweight champ. That is until 1990, when a literally unknown fighter by the name of James Buster Douglas hit the scene, They fought in Tokyo, Japan, and Douglas, Buster Douglas, that is, knocked out Tyson. Very unexpectedly. Odds were like 42 to 1. The unconquerable got conquered in a very unexpected manner. But when I hear the word impregnable, I think of Mike Tyson, not because of that, but because of what he said 10 years later. So from 1990 to the year 2000, Tyson got himself in some trouble. He went to jail. He converted to Islam. And he became, when he got out of jail, he, he got back out on the, 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 you know, the comeback trail, trying to get his title back. And so in the year 2000, he fought a guy named Lou Savarese. And he knocked out poor Lou in 38 seconds. It was, didn't even have a, a chance. It was over before it started. But What was more entertaining than the fight was the post-fight interview. And I I use the term interview loosely. Uh, You can see this on YouTube. It is just bizarre. Uh, Poor Jim Gray was the guy trying to conduct the interview, and Tyson was not right. You can just tell. But let me quote to you what he says in this post-fight interview after knocking out Lou Savarese. This is Tyson just going full-on full Tyson mode right here. He says, I spit on my paper. <laughs> just, just getting into it, all, y'all, that's all. All right, this is Tyson. He goes, I'm the best ever. I'm the most brutal and vicious and most ruthless champion there's ever been. There's no one can stop me. Lennox is a conqueror, referring to then-champion Lennox Lewis. Lennox is a conqueror? No, I'm Alexander. He's no Alexander. I'm the best ever. There's never been anybody as ruthless. I'm Sonny Liston. I'm Jack Dempsey. There's no one like me. I'm from their cloth. There's no one that can match me. My style is impetuous. My defense is impregnable. And I'm just ferocious. I want your heart. I want to eat his children. Praise be to Allah. End quote. Now, eating, eating children aside, all right, let's just, let's just move that off to the side. I'm not sure where Mike was going with that, okay? That's some grade A boasting right there, all right? That dude thinks he's untouchable, does he not? Well, if you know your boxing history, he did run into Lennox Lewis. They did fight. And in the eighth round, Lewis knocked Tyson out. First Buster Douglas, then Lennox Lewis. And that's how it was for Sardis. Thinking they're indestructible, you end up getting destroyed. And if you'll indulge me, I can't help but quote to you my favorite rapper, Shy Lin, in his song, One Day. He talks about Tyson. Check out these lyrics. He says, let's shine the light on the one they call Iron Mike. Nowadays, he's known for being all weird, but back in 88, nobody was more feared. At the peak of his powers, his opponents would retreat. In moments, he would eat and devour. Snuffed with punches, but we must discuss this. Crushed it just enough to trust his toughness. Pride brings such a justice. You puffed up with smugness, you're going to meet Puster Douglas. 
bars, man. How do you not love Shy Lin's lyrics? Check out One Day. So, that was Sardis. That was Sardis. And Jesus says, unless you repent, unless you wake up, I'm coming for you. And it's going to be unexpected. You're not going to know what hits you. Be flat on your back, down for the count. Now, I need to make a, a, a distinction here in, in terms of this, uh, this phrase, thief in the night, reference. I, I don't think it's a direct reference to the second coming of Christ. People have understood it that way. I, I just personally don't share that view. I, I think it is uh, mentioned, uh, what's, what's being mentioned here is judgment, but in a general sense. Okay, partly this has to do with whatever your eschatological position is. I, I won't go into it, but here's, here's the thing we need to understand. Thief in the night phrase means unexpected, right? If your house is going to get broken into, you don't get a knock on the door at 3 p.m. Hello, hi, uh, I'm a thief. Uh, I'll be back in about 12 hours, and I'm going to totally steal everything you have. Okay, so just giving you advance warning. They don't do that. They just show up at 3 a.m. Unexpected. And every time in the scriptures where Jesus uses this phrase about him coming like a thief in the night, it carries this idea of he's coming to do damage. He's coming to bring the pain. He's coming to inflict pain. He's coming to destroy and he says, you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Very ominous. You don't want to hear those words from Jesus. So whether it's Matthew 24, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Peter 3, Revelation 16, every time that phrase is mentioned, thief in the night, Jesus is coming to do harm. And this may hit your ear a little funny. You say, well, that, that's not my Jesus. Well, I hope your Jesus lines up with the biblical Jesus because that's the only real Jesus. People create idols all the time. Well, my God, this, my God, that, my Jesus. What about the Jesus as revealed in the scriptures? I think if this, if this is something you're like, yeah, I reject this, it might be because you're out of balance in your Christology the study of Christ. See, if we only consider Jesus in his humanity, which we get primarily from the Gospels, we're missing out on having a fully-orbed understanding of who he is. Yes, read about Jesus in his incarnation, but we need to mix in the book of Revelation to read about Jesus in his exaltation. Not just incarnation, but exaltation. And I'm convinced that this is part of the reason people love Jesus around Christmas and Easter. For many, that's the only time they think about Jesus, is at that time. And where is Jesus at Christmas time? In their mind. Little baby in the manger. Just innocent, cute little goo-goo-ga-ga in swaddling cloths. Completely harmless in the manger. Non-threatening. I mean, no one's afraid of babies, right? If you are, you probably need some pills or something, okay? They're the most non-threatening beings on the planet. That's Jesus at Christmas time in their mind. Then you go to Easter. Easter, we know, is about the resurrection, but for many, it's about Jesus being pinned on the cross. He's on the cross, and he's equally helpless. He can't harm me. He can't do anything to me. Look, he's just pinned there, nailed in to the cross. But what they fail to realize is that Jesus is no longer a baby and he's no longer on that cross. He's resurrected. There's a reason that cross right there is empty. The cross is empty. He is resurrected. He has ascended and exalted at the right hand of the Father. And here's the thing that we must Except, because it's what the Scriptures teach, He's coming back. And He's not coming back in swaddling cloths. He's not going to be put up on a cross again. That was a one-time event. He's coming back in victory and in power. A triumphant King. 
As 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 says, He's coming in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on who? On whom? Those who do not know God. Do you know God here today? Those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. That right there does not sit well with many people's view of Jesus. You know why? Because they've concocted some soft, sissified version of Him. Their Christology has no room for 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. As one preacher so aptly put it, let me quote him. He said, It's exceedingly important regarding our Christology that we have a clear picture of Jesus in our mind that's more than a humble, marginalized Galilean peasant in a dress with feathered hair who got beat up while wearing sandals, driving a cabriolet, rocking out to pop teenage chick music, drinking decaf, talking about his feelings. The guy says, we need a bigger Jesus than that guy. And praise God, the Scriptures present a bigger Jesus than that guy. That is not the Jesus of Scripture. That's the Jesus of, I don't know, coffee mugs and quilts, right? The Jesus of Scripture is a fully orbed Jesus where He comes as a servant who comes to save, but He also comes back as an exalted, conquering King who comes back to inflict vengeance. You can't have one without the other. This is Jesus, the biblical Jesus. And this Jesus says to avoid that coming judgment, you need to, one, wake up. Whatever life is within you, strengthen that. That's the second thing. And the third thing is verse 3. Remember. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Remember the Gospel. Remember Christ. Remember when you first met Him. Do you remember that? I do. About almost 20 years now. Everything was fresh and new and exciting. And one of my prayers has been recently, because of studying this text, Lord, let me not forget. Let me remember that. Bring that to recollection. Create within me that fire within that I had. And hopefully I still got a little fire within me, but the world just comes at us and takes us away. Or we're slumbering. We're asleep. And we need to remember who Jesus is and that He was so kind to give His life for us when we were dead in our sins and trespasses. Remember that. You do know what I'm talking about, right? You have met Him. Right? He has changed you, right? If you're in Christ, you're a new creature. The old has gone. The new has come. If you're like, I don't know. My life's always been the same. You may not know Him. And I love you enough to tell you that. That's the wake-up call. we got to remember. That's the keep it. Don't forget. Don't lose sight of Him who secured our salvation. Assuming you have that. I don't make that assumption because we come into this building. There's a lot of believers in Jesus. Born again, true, you know, born again, spirit indwelled believers in Jesus Christ in this place. But I know there's lost people who come in as well. It's not 100% Christians in this place on the weekends. We need to hear this and you need to hear this. It's a warning. That's what it is. It's what the alarm clock does. It warns you, time to get up. Otherwise, you're going to miss something. An appointment, your job. And the warning here is come to Christ before it's too late. Today is the day of salvation. Don't delay. If if you've never trusted in Christ, I plead with you. I beg you, come to Him. Come to Him before He comes to you. Get your affairs in order. He offers you mercy and forgiveness today. Forgiveness for all your sins. Every single one of them. Buried in the bottom of the ocean. As far as the east is from the west. 
That's our Christ. But you got to come to Him on His terms. It's repentance and faith. It's not ask Jesus into your heart. It's not make Him Lord of your life. He is Lord of your life, whether you love Him or you hate Him. He is the Lord and you will answer to Him. Know Him today as Savior before you meet Him as judge. Repent. People get tripped up on this. What is repent? I don't know. Repentance sounds like a religious term. It's not that complicated. Literally, it means change your mind. In the Greek, metanoia, change your mind. Repentance is this. I'll illustrate it. I'm over here going towards sin, all about self, all about unrighteousness, all about the flesh, thinking things I ought not think, saying things I ought not say, doing things I ought not do. All, all about me going towards sin. Here's repentance. You ready? It's very complicated. That's it. I turn my back on all of that, but I don't just stand here. And I don't just wander off anywhere. No, I go... Look, the Lord put a cross right there. I go to the cross. I go to Jesus Christ. Say, I'm sorry. I don't want that anymore. That's the stuff you died for. I want you. Has that happened? Have you done that? And I must say that this is not a perfect thing where you just turn away from this and then you never are drawn back. That's the flesh versus spirit battle that you should be familiar with. The Bible teaches that. You're like, I don't know. I don't know of any battle. What are you speaking about? You could be spiritually dead. Worldliness here. Godliness here. Decay here. Renewal here. Death, life. Decomposition, resurrection. It's not too late. There is hope for you. You have breath in your lungs, right? Use that breath to confess. Jesus is Lord. Your heart beating? Believe in that heart that God raised Him from the dead. You do that humbly. You do that by the Spirit. Crying out for a Savior, you will be saved. You have that promise in Scripture. And this is the command to the dead unbeliever and to us if we are slumbering as a sleepy believer. It's repent. Repent and believe the gospel. Martin Luther rightly articulated in his 95 Theses the very first one. I'll give you the first one. He said, he said this, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. It's not just what you do to get saved, it's what you do every day when you're saved. See, Martin Luther, it's funny that, uh, let me just say this, it's funny I should bring him up because uh, some of you may be familiar with the way uh, some people interpret uh, these churches in Revelation. They would say each church represents a particular church era or a church age. And for Sardis, you know what it is? It's the Protestant Reformation. So it's interesting that, that Martin Luther came to mind as I was preparing this. And, and speaking of reform, uh, let me just say this. Tomorrow is, uh, is October 31st. It's a very controversial day, right? Not everybody celebrates it. Well, I don't care what anybody says. I celebrate it. And I'm going to continue to celebrate it every year. I may go out and get some candy, some M&Ms or Skittles. Maybe do a little deep dive in the doctrine of justification. Because I don't care. I celebrate Reformation Day. What, did you think I was talking about something else? <laughs> Reformation Day, October 31st. 1517, that's when those, those theses were nailed to the church door in Wittenberg. Or if I want to sound German, I'll say Wittenberg. Okay? You looking for an alternative to that other thing that people do on October 31st? Join me, celebrating the Reformation. We go bowling in the bongo home. That's what we do. We used to celebrate it, now we go bowling. Go out to dinner, pick up some candy. Still eat candy, right? Go bowling. The place is dead. It's awesome. No pun intended there. Um, just you know, like there's zombies handing you your rental shoes. 
Um, let's get back here. Um, Let's finish the text. Where are we at? Let's finish the text. Verses 4 through 6. Revelation 3, 4 through 6. Listen to the promises here. Listen to these promises. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So those who conquer are going to be clothed in white, for they are worthy. So who are these worthy conquerors? Well, John, the author of Revelation, he says elsewhere in 1 John 5, he tells us this. He says, For everyone who has been born of God, born again, They overcome the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The conqueror is the one who by faith believes in Jesus, turning from sin, trusting in Christ. It's in him we have the victory. He makes us worthy. And if this is true for you, he will never blot out your name out of the book of life. And I, and I wanted to deal with that book of life because people are fascinated by that and it, it brings up all sorts of thoughts and questions like, all right, if he never blots out names, does that mean he does blot out names or who, who gets blotted out, who doesn't? And I started to, to deal with it and I realized it's a huge topic. It gets into, you know, can one lose their salvation and all that stuff. And so I just decided to just not include it. I think what I'll do is, is make a blog post on our, um, the Living Water blog on our website. If you're interested in, you know, the book of life, what, that, what is that? What does it mean about this blotting and all that? Uh, I'll make a post um, this week and send you a link to it. Uh, otherwise, we'd be here all, all day because you don't want to give an important topic like that the, the short shrift. So. But here's the bottom line. The bottom line is this. No matter who you are, this passage today, it applies to you. It applies to you. It applies to me. God has worked me over this week. Man, let me tell you, this has impacted me deeply, as the Word of God should, right? And I hope that's, that's happening to you as well. It's for you. It's for me. It's for the pastors here. It's for the elders. It's for the first-time guests who just kind of stumbled in, a lost person who's just here checking things out. Everyone, everyone needs to respond to this passage. And the command is to repent. There's something going on in each of our lives right now that demands repentance, that turning away. I don't know what that is for you, but God does. And hopefully with a little introspection, he will reveal that to you if you don't know. It's not my job to know. I don't want to know. I'm busy. I got my own stuff I need to concern myself with. Ephesians chapter 5 says this. Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Isn't that beautiful? My friends, this is about Christ. This is not about reading your Bible more. If you think that's what I'm saying, I'm not. Okay? You should be reading your Bible. But that's not what this is about. This isn't about praying more, although you should pray. This isn't about attending church more. This is about Jesus. It's about Him. And it's not about you cleaning up your, the mess that is your life so that you can come to Him. No, it's come to Him because your life's a mess. You see how that works? Sometimes we get things out of order. And And your life being a mess isn't because your checkbook won't balance, although that may be true. This isn't about your job or your ornery boss or your kids who are giving you a headache, your house, your car's breaking down. Those are all important things. That's not what I'm talking about here today. This isn't about your health issues, although those are important. This is about a disease that runs throughout the entirety of humanity. And we're all affected. We're all infected, I should say. 
It runs through the whole human race. The problem is sin, and Jesus is the solution. People get all wigged out on Revelation. Oh, what is it all about? The Antichrist, the beast, the false prophet, two witnesses, Gog, Magog. The first verse of the book tells us what it's about. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's his unveiling. It's about him. And that's what this sermon is about. He said right in verse 1, you have a problem. I'm the solution, Jesus says. You're not looking to me. I got the spirit that you so desperately need. Come to me. I got you in my hand. I'm in control. I got the power. Come to me and live. And he will give the spirit generously in abundance. He's like, I know you got a lot of fleshly activity going on, right? That you got a good reputation among men, but that's all of the flesh. It's the power by the arm of the flesh. Jesus says elsewhere in John 6, he says, the flesh profits nothing. It's the spirit that gives life. Let me wrap it right here. John 3, for he whom God has sent, that's Jesus, he utters the words of God. For he gives the spirit without measure. That's what we need. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Can I just be completely frank? My concern is that there are spiritually dead people in here and the wrath of God abides upon you now. And that breaks my heart. And I want you to come to Christ. I want... God, to move on you, to raise you to life. And I know in this room, there's people that are lethargic, apathetic, and complacent because you're looking at one right here. That's what God has shown me this week. And what do I need? And those of you, if you're in my boat, same thing. We need the Spirit to move. So what we're going to do is we're going to take just a couple of minutes. We're going to just kind of dim the lights a little bit. Uh, you know, we're not big on altar calls here. I'm not calling any up, anybody up front. But if you want to come up front during a time of reflection, I won't stop you. No one's going to stop you from doing that. But we're going to take a minute, actually three minutes and 47 seconds, because that's the length of the song that we're going to play. And we're going to just take some time to examine our lives. Where are we at with Jesus? Unless you're in here today, you're like, I'm all good. What you talking about, man? Got this Christianity thing all wrapped up. Not me. I need this time, and I hope you do too. Let's figure out where in our lives repentance needs to be applied. Let's do that now.